morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to our service this morning. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extra Bibles. If you're going to join us, we would love for you to start learning the Bible. I think that's one of the reasons the Holy Spirit's working in people's hearts. They're like, hey, I'm actually learning the Bible. So we're going to start reading the book of Numbers together. We believe the Bible is God's word, life-changing, and the Spirit of God is moving. By the way, the people that joined this morning, if you feel led by the Spirit to explore that, next Sunday, we have a newcomer's gathering. I think it's at 11. It's on the current there. You can read about that, but you're welcome to find out more about our church. This morning, we're going to begin this series on the book of Numbers. And once you become a Christian, if you don't have a background in the Old Testament, it's really important that we look back and see the story of the people of God in the Old Testament. Because they become an example for us because we have many parallels to them. Now, if, if you don't know anything about the Bible, we have a series online. We've been through Genesis. We've been through Exodus. We're now going to go through the book of Numbers. And I've called it War and Worship because in the beginning of the book, there's this long census. You're like, why are all these people being counted? The Greek word arithmoi, from which we get arithmetic, that's, that's why it's called numbers, because it's, a, a, it's about numbering God's people. Now, the, the Hebrew Bible, it's called in the wilderness, because that's how it begins. But if you read the first couple chapters, the first two chapters, God arranges them into their tribes by number, and then he says, all of the men able to go to war. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he gathers the Levites around the tabernacle to prepare the people for worship. So the book begins and gives us a paradigm or a picture of going through the wilderness, war and worship. Now, this is uh, a small mistake here, but let me remind you, big picture when you're reading the Bible, it's not just God's love story, but it is telling one great story, the story of creation, where we came from, the living God, maker of heaven and earth, created us. But man fell. The fall of man, the original sin of Adam and Eve, explains the reason the world is the way it is. So these are out of order. I'm not sure, but no big deal. We could fix that. And so the theme of the Bible then is redemption. Somehow God is going to fix this brokenness through his son Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, which ultimately, as Benjamin just mentioned, Jesus is coming back for a great restoration there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Not everyone's going to be there. Either you repent and follow Christ, or you miss out on this great restoration. Now, when you're reading the Old Testament, which for some of you, you'll be like, oh, I didn't know we were allowed to do that. You'll pull the pages apart. There's a great story of God's people. How God, amongst all the nations of the earth, decided to create his own nation through Abraham. Abraham didn't come from a Christian home. <clears throat> Abraham was a pagan like his parents. But one day, the God of glory revealed himself to Abraham and, and told him, I'm going to make you a great nation. But then he also told him that this nation's going to go into bondage, but I'm going to bring you to this promised land. And so Genesis chapter 12 is a very famous passage. Every Christian should know the Abrahamic covenant. This is kind of how the story of redemption begins. God selects Abraham. He says, go forth from your country and your relatives from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. 
and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth, all the nations, people all over the world will be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Now, we're going to learn later that that's actually a prophecy of Christ, that through the seed of Abraham, the gospel is going to go to all the world. But that's how it all started, a chosen people. But what we don't read in this passage, we learn from the book of Acts that God also told him something else. God told him in the book of Acts, and we're going to come there, even though I'm going to lead you into this promised land, you're going to have to go down into bondage for 400 years. So Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which is where modern-day Babylon is. That, this is where the Persian Gulf is, Persian Gulf War, right? God calls him. He doesn't go straight across because that's desert. So we read that Abraham traveled down into this promised land that God said to give him. he would give him. But he said, you're going to have to go down into bondage for a time. So in Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us about this. He says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and said to him, depart from your country and your relatives. He said, come into the land that I will show you. So he gets into that land, but God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land, and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, and after that, they will come out and serve me. So I want you to think a little bit about that. What, what, what's going on here? Well, God is telling him, Abraham, your people are going to go down into Egypt for a time, actually 400 years. Now, when they finally went down there, there was only about 70 of them. But God had said, I'm going to multiply you and make you a great nation. By the time 400 years was up, there was a million of them. So they were multiplying. But while they were there, they were in bondage. They were enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they were cruelly treated. And they would cry out to God, Oh God, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you promised to take us to a land. And so eventually God raised up Moses. And through the plagues and the Passover, he said, Look, sacrifice a lamb which would ultimately point to Christ, the Lamb of God. And he said, when I see the blood of the Lamb, I'll pass over you. And he led them out in this great deliverance, this exodus out of Egypt, this crossing over of the Red Sea. Now take note of that, because Paul's going to apply this to our lives. And so here they are in Egypt. God raises up Moses. You know the story of baby Moses hidden for three months, and then in the, the little basket, Pharaoh's daughter adopts him. But when he becomes a man, God leads him to take the children of Israel across the Red Sea and down to Mount Sinai. And out Mount Sinai, God met with his people and he gave them the Ten Commandments. This is when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And God made this great covenant with the Jewish people. We call this old covenant the law. And so this is the background. When we celebrate communion, we say this is the new covenant. We need to know what is the old covenant. God began with his people in the book of Exodus. He made a covenant with them. In the third month after they had gone out of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in front of the mountain. 
And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and he said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, as you learn to read the Old Testament, think of the parallels as to how God called you and me out of sin and has forgiven us and carried us on eagles' wings. So God says, now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God's like, strap on your seatbelts. I'm leading you back up into this land. I'm making a covenant with you. And all the people agreed that they would obey God. And so here they are, ready to leave Mount Sinai, ready to go up to the promised land. Now that journey with a million people to be safe, let's say, we'll give them a year, six months to a year. We're not talking about thousands of miles, but it's a difficult journey. Should have taken a year, but it took them 40 years. And that's where the book of Numbers comes in. The book of Numbers is the story of God's people in their wandering for 40 years, their war, because they had many battles to fight, and their worship with the tabernacle and the priests and sacrifice. And it's all taking place in the wilderness. And I want you to think that in many ways there's a parallel to us as Christians because when you become a Christian, God calls you out of the world into the wilderness. He doesn't ask us to move, but he asks us to say, listen, this world is no longer your home. You're an alien. You're a stranger. You're a foreigner. You're in a foreign land. You're among foreign people. You're one of my chosen ones. And I'm going to lead you through this wilderness. And I'm going to take you to a promised land. Now, for us, that promised land is the kingdom of God. So some of the key themes that we're going to see, and, and we're going to read numbers together, is we're first of all going to see the active presence of God. So in the middle of the book of Numbers, God starts showing up by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, and they had the visible presence of God leading them through the wilderness. When God moved his presence, they moved with him. That's why I want us to learn that hymn. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. But we're also going to learn more about God. That God isn't just like a grandfather in the sky going, children, what do you want now? But he's holy. He's set apart. He redeems us through blood. And then he says, you shall be holy as I am holy. And he takes it so seriously that Moses himself loses it in a moment of anger when God says to him in the middle of the wilderness, speak to the rock. And in his anger, he strikes the rock. And God says to Moses, because you failed to treat me as holy, you will not enter into the promised land. We're also going to learn about worship. We're going to learn that worship isn't a buffet that we do it our way. That God gave very specific ways to worship him. You'll frequently hear people say, hey, you know, as long as, as long as you just try to follow God, they're all trains going to the same place. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth, the truth of his word, his way, 
through Christ in faith. But we're also going to learn about warfare. We're going to realize that, hey, their war was physical, first of all, because they were fighting against Canaanites and Midianites. But in the New Testament, we read that we struggle not with flesh and blood, but we're still in a battle. But we struggle with powers and principalities and evil forces of this dark world. And these enemies are just as set on taking us out as the Canaanites were, the people of God in the Old Testament. Numbers has a great deal to say about faith and obedience. Those two are sisters. Those two are inseparable. When we disobey God, it's a, it's a form of unbelief. One way or another, what I'm saying to God is, I don't trust you. I don't want to do it your way because if I do it your way, somehow that's not going to work for me. And so the book of Numbers is a great reminder to us to trust God, to obey God, regardless of what others around us are doing. And that when we fall into unbelief and disobedience, that we'll have consequences. But particularly, Numbers is going to focus on complaining. The word grumble and complain is a very fascinating feature of this book. And it's something you and I need to think about as American Christians, because not that we do that, but I'm not going to church. The air conditioner is broken. Or, man, it's way too cold. Or, or, why are they doing that? I don't like how they're doing that anymore. Or, God, why is this going on? You know, this, isn't, this is hard. And we're reminded that the New Testament says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. That we may prove ourselves to be children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we as Christians shine as lights. We're holding out the word of life. So this is going to be a great challenge and call many to repentance because of our discontent and our complaining. And there's a lot in the book of Numbers about submission to God, about how God raised up Moses and even his own brother and sister, like, who do you think you are, Moses? And God had to strike Miriam with leprosy. And then later, remember Korah in his rebellion telling Moses, we can speak the word of God just like you. And the earth opens up and swallows Korah. And we learn that in the Christian faith, sometimes we have a tendency to be disgruntled and challenging and everybody, they didn't even consult me and what's this and I don't like that. And the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. But particularly the theme of worship in the wilderness is going to be prominent. Now, this seems a little bit weird, but they basically worshiped with a traveling tent, like P.T. Barnum, only God's way. Worship on wheels. God says, I want you to build this tent. And it wasn't all that elaborate. It didn't have beautiful stained glass and a great tower. It was a very basic tent in which they learned to worship God his way. And they learned that they are to have certain people who have been appointed by God to mediate the way to God and only the priests were around the temple and the high priest would bring the sacrifice into the presence of God and place it on the Holy of Holies and God would cover over their sins. So I want you to picture what it would be like to, to live in the desert, right? To eat the same food every day, which was manna, and to follow around the portable worship center as you saw the presence of God. It would have been tough. It would have been tempting. There would have been trials. 
And you can understand, and we can sympathize why these people blew it. But what we're going to learn is that Paul says these things happened as examples so that we don't fall into the same struggles and temptations. So what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to watch just a very brief video. If you've never seen what the tabernacle looked like, first of all, if you get a chance, you can go out to Lancaster. There's a Mennonite Information Center where they have a life-size reproduction of the tabernacle. But I just want you to, as you're reading through the book of Numbers, be able to picture in your mind, what did it look like to live out in the wilderness? Hey, where, where's the hotels? Um, where, where were the movies? Where, what restaurants were they able to go to? What bank did they use? And we're going to see that it was a very primitive and a difficult scenario for them to live in. But having said that, let me remind you that they also were to offer sacrifices. So if we can't get this up in just a moment, we'll skip it. Oh, here it is. Could you guys dim the lights for just a minute? Thanks. As the children of Israel left the life of slavery they had known for four centuries, God led them into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. Here in the wilderness, the work of stripping away their identity as slaves began. A new culture was being fashioned, one that would reshape their identity and teach them in literal and symbolic ways that God was their only hope and their only source for life. The focal point for their physical camp as well as the center of their worship would be known as the tabernacle or tent of meeting. Moses was summoned upon Mount Sinai where God would speak to him for 40 days and nights, outlining the culture, giving the fundamental Ten Commandments and explaining the ethics of this emerging culture he was creating in his chosen people. Upon Mount Sinai, God gave the blueprint for a portable dwelling place where his divine presence would be among the people as he led them forward toward the promised land, their permanent home. There would be an outer courtyard around the tent of meeting, and inside the tabernacle, there would be an outer chamber known as the holy place, and an inner chamber known as the most holy place, or holy of holies. Here in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant would dwell, and the very presence of God would descend and be among the people. The tabernacle would occupy the center of the multitude, a million or more strong, surrounded by the Levites, who were set aside to care for it and lead the people in the worship of Yahweh. The tabernacle accompanied the children of Israel through all their wanderings in the wilderness, as an ever-present reminder of who they were and who they were becoming. It crossed the Jordan River with them into the Promised Land and eventually found a more permanent home in Shiloh, where the heart of the Israelite worship situated itself for the first three and a half centuries in their new homeland. The tabernacle was the religious heart of the people all the way through the time of the judges. As the time of the kings emerged, the Ark of the Covenant was lost in battle by King Saul, later to be regained, but never again to be at Shiloh. Later, King David would bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem 
and his son Solomon would build the first permanent replacement for the tabernacle, the temple of God. So what we're going to do as we begin to read the book together is I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, take one this morning. But just like any book, you don't start in the middle. You're going to start in the beginning, and we're going to read through the book together. And, and basically, I want to just give you the big blueprint, kind of the skeleton. The first nine chapters are getting ready. So they're at Mount Sinai, and God organizes his people. He structures them to get ready to make this wilderness journey. But then the middle of the book, chapters 10 through 20, we see that repeatedly they fail to trust God. They fail to obey him. And there's some amazing stories and challenges in here. These are the things we teach our children, but not just to fill their heads with information, but to say, hey, we're in the same realm and we need to obey God and trust him. And eventually the whole generation dies off. And this last section of the book is a a sense of a preparation of new people to enter the promised land. So having said that, what are some of the themes that you and I should look for? As you're reading through the book, look at some of these key stories like the grumbling and complaining, Miriam and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, remember the spies going out and and only two of them trust God, the other 10 grumble and and, and complain and remember the rebellion and how how God raises up Moses and, and God was so angry at them for their discontentment. They're like, we don't like this food and it's hot and we don't have enough to drink that eventually he sent poison snakes that began biting and killing people. Now, those of you who camp know that snakes are bad. Imagine living in the wilderness knowing that there's an infestation of poisonous snakes as God's discipline. And so, so they cried out to Moses, please beg God to stop these snakes. And so Moses pleaded with God and God said, take a, a staff and, and, and fashion a bronze serpent on it. And any complainer who's bit by a snake, he has a period of time that he can come and he can look at the serpent. And if he looks at the serpent, he'll be healed. He'll live. He said, well, why is that there? When Jesus was on earth, he would have told Tim Tebow to put John 3.15 under your cheeks. Because John 3.15 says, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we realize that just like them, we're filled with sin and we deserve God's judgment until we look to Christ and are freely forgiven by his grace. Amen? And so, how shall we as a church move through the book of Numbers together? We're gonna do this together as as a family, as a a congregation. We're gonna read through the book of Numbers. The first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna read it prayerfully and I ask that you would pray for our messages that the Holy Spirit will speak through our speak to our hearts, but we're also going to read it logically. We're going to start in the beginning, and I recognize that the first four chapters are just lists of people, and while the Bible says all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness, it it wouldn't be unfair to say some is more profitable than others, so I'm not going to ask you to commit this to memory or pull out your favorite memory verse and the tribe of Jacob, 12,000. But just read it and see how God emphasizes people and families and individuals. And particularly when you're reading chapters 3 and 4, try to draw a little chart. When they had that tabernacle, God said, 
Okay, I'm going to arrange you all around the tabernacle. This tribe here, this tribe on the east. Everyone is to camp facing the tabernacle. Draw a little chart and kind of picture how they were organized by God with God being the central focus. You woke up in the morning. The first thing you saw when you came out of your tent was the presence of God. And you learned to orient your life around God and to purify yourself from sin and to consecrate yourself to get ready, celebrating the Passover and heading on your journey. But we're also going to read it applicationally. In other words, we're going to look for parallels between them and us. We're going to see that they had great spiritual privileges. Think about the privilege of being chosen by God of all the nations of the earth. And God himself dwelled among them. God's presence, his power, his promises, his provision. What a privilege it is to know the true and living God. The rest of the nations grope around in blindness. And when people say, that's the thing about Christians, they're so narrow and they think they know so much more. It's like, no, we're not. We're a privileged people. If you know Christ, it's not because you're smarter than the other bears. It's because Jesus called you to himself and said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to God but through me. But we'll need to learn that just as they had Christ and spiritual privileges, there are things that, that we need to remember Peter Parker with privileges come responsibility. So as we're reading through Numbers, we think about these different events. Paul, in dealing with the Corinthians in a very pastoral way, in trying to get the Corinthians to stop going to idols, temples, and offer meat, he says, let me remind you of the story of numbers. Because you Christians and us Christians need to think about the fact that they had privileges and so do we. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So he's thinking of that wilderness time. He said, they all passed through the sea, that great event of parting the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what he doesn't mean by that is they stopped halfway across the Red Sea and said, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what he does mean by that is just as they began their journey with a redemption out of bondage, the Red Sea was symbolic for where God wants you and me to begin our journey, and that's with baptism. And that's why sometimes I'm amazed at Christians who go, yeah, I'm saved, but I'm not getting baptized. Like, what are you talking about? Getting baptized doesn't get you into heaven. Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them. It's not optional. This is, this is, this is our public way of saying, I want to be a Christ follower. And we're called as Christians to remember our baptism. Don't you know that you've been buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life? But look at the privilege they had. It says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So remember, in the book of Numbers, we're going to see that God would speak to a rock and streams of living water would gush out. But what we don't learn from the Old Testament, Paul tells us, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. And that's us. In this barren land in which we live, we can always look to Christ when we find that our marriage or our job or the things of this life just don't seem to be filling me, Jesus said, come to me, you who are thirsty 
and I will give you living water, and it will gush out from among you, and out of your belly shall rivers of living water flow. And so we sing songs like, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. See the streams of living water. And, and, and we think about how we, as Christians today, are following Christ in this difficult journey called life, in which God's goal is not to make us happy, it's to form us into a godly, holy people and to take us all the way into eternal life as we cross the Jordan into life eternal. And so some of the parallels are striking because they had a journey through the wilderness and so do we. That didn't look fun, folks. And life is not always fun. And they didn't get to pick where they live. They didn't go, I don't like the neighbors in this trailer park. I'm moving to these neighbors. And they had the same issues that we do. I don't necessarily like my spouse. Oh, okay, then just get another one. No, you learn that life isn't about having a happy marriage, although that's a great blessing. It's about obeying God. It's not about our kids being annoying. It's about leading our children with us and praying with all our hearts that they too will enter into the kingdom of God because our promised land is not in this life, but it's just as real and just like Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, and, and he pictures himself headed for the celestial city, there are many dangers, toils, and snares along the way. The same temptations, the same struggles, the same issues that they dealt with, we deal with. And if you're still here on earth, you're not there yet. And there's always a danger that any one of us can have an evil and unbelieving heart. And they had to endure trials and temptations. And so do we. So Paul, as, as, as he introduces these great privileges, he goes, come on, Corinthians, just like them, you have Christ. You've been baptized. You're saved. He then goes on and he says this, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. You're like, wait a minute. A million people who had the miracles of the, of the, the Egyptian plagues and the presence of God, and with most of them, God was not pleased? Yes. I don't think it's saying here none of them were saved except Caleb and Joshua and Moses. And you're like, yeah, but that was back then. God's pleased with all Christians now, right? Because he just loves us. And you're like, well, yes and no. He sees Christ and he pardons our sin. But personally, you and I have to examine ourselves along the way. Paul says these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Well, I don't like my spouse. I think I want a different one. Or I don't like my house. I don't like, I don't like it. The Bible says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. You go to pastor, I got that. Because listen, man, I don't have any statues in my house. I mean, I don't even do that. Idolatry is far more than statues. It's when other things take the place of God in our life. So by that definition, we have lots of idols that we must continually dethrone and cast down. And particularly, it says the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. That was not a, a party that we want to participate in. That was drunkenness, sexual sin, all of the things that the world invites us. Come on, man. Life is short nor let us act immorally 
as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. You're like, well, pastor, you're preaching to the choir because I'm true to my wife, and I don't do none of them idle stuff. And God says, well, let's talk about this. Don't try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And suddenly God speaks to our heart and says, hey, people of God, are you a complainer? Do you not like how people are, are doing things? You're not getting it your way? Do you not like the way things are going in the country and, and maybe in your family or at your job, the morons you work with? And suddenly God says, listen, they're no different from us. So with great spiritual privileges, there's still a danger of spiritual pearls. So Paul says these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. And then he says, by the way, think of you, where are you in the story upon whom the ends of the ages have come? We're not in the Old Testament story. We're in the New Testament. And Jesus Christ is perched on the edge of heaven, ready to come again. And the only reason he hasn't come, the Bible says he's not slow about his promise, but he's not willing that any should perish. And so in these days in American pleasure and comfort, we need to be reminded, hey, this... This country is not our home. And I'm not living to get a better job or to, or to self-help and improve myself or to make sure my kids are all doctors. But it's, and there's nothing wrong with doctors. We have lots of them here. I appreciate you guys. I got a little pain right here. Can I, can I, no, I'm just kidding. So, therefore, Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to read the book of Numbers, not gone, morons. What were they thinking? Stupid, look what they had. Why were they? Hey, listen, that can happen to any of us. And yet somehow I think we, we just think that our case is different. Like you don't understand, Pastor. Like if you had my past, like, like things are different now. It's, it's, it's a lot harder. We got the internet. There's, there's all of these things that we go through. And, and, and frankly, you know, it's just not that simple. My case is different. I, if I obeyed God, if I paid my taxes, if I tried to trust God and do what's right, it, that just, that's pie in the sky. If I confronted that person like the Bible says, it wouldn't go well. And God says, listen, no temptation has overtaken you, Tom. I'm not preaching like a graduate, like, oh, I don't struggle, I'm not tempted, I don't complain. No temptation has overtaken you, Tom, but such as is common to man. Those of you that struggle with depression, you're not the first one that was depressed. And I don't want to make light of that. That's a very difficult thing. Those of you that struggle with substance abuse, you're not the only one that struggles with, with substance abuse. Those, those of you that have same-sex attraction, you're not the only one that struggles with that. Those of you that struggle with purity or, or, or integrity, we're not alone. In fact, we have it easy compared to Austin was sharing me with this morning. He, he was talking to one of the Christians that we support over in Lebanon and Syria, and he said, how's it going there? He goes, oh, it's been very peaceful. He said, yeah. He said, there were a lot of mortars that dropped right in our city two days ago, but we've had a peaceful two days. Imagine what it would be like to live in a country where your Christian faith would have meant instant death if you're found out. And so whatever you're going through this morning and you're like, God, this has been really hard, and maybe you're disillusioned with God and you don't like the way he's doing things or you don't like the way we're doing things. God says, with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. 
so that you and I may be able to endure it. There's always a way out. There's always a way through God, by grace through faith, to obey God, to trust God. And so we're in a journey together. It's really quite exciting when you think about it. We're, we're marching together. And as we're growing, we're trying to keep, keep, keep us organized and following in the footsteps of Christ and trying to be obedient to the word of God and trying to raise our families and reach our community and give and serve and work together. So I'm looking forward to it, and I, and I hope that this week as you're reading the book of Numbers that you'll pray that as a church we'll learn how in the midst of these spiritual wars to pray for one another, to fight the good fight of faith, but also to worship along the way, to say what a great Savior we have. Oh God, lead us all the way into the kingdom of God. As I close this morning, I, you know, there's one other thing I want you to notice as you're reading through the book, that among those grumblers, there's this group that the Bible calls the rabble. The Bible says, as they traveled with this million people, the rabble were among them. Who were the rabble? They were the people that traveled with the people of God, but their hearts weren't with the people of God. And sometimes I think we just assume, well, if you go to church, that makes you a Christian. No. You have to become a Christian personally when you turn your heart towards the Lord. He's not asking you to clean up your life. No. Try to be a good person and then I'll forgive you. But what he longs for is a contrite heart of repentance where we say to God, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I can't earn my way to heaven. Some of you are so sincere. You've come from a church background where they're telling you, do this and do that. Keep the sacraments and and somehow maybe you'll make it. That's not the gospel. Jesus stands at the cross. He said, it's finished. And he said, come to me. And all who come to me, I won't cast out. But if you haven't turned your life over to Christ, if you haven't trusted in his forgiveness, I beg you to do that this morning. If you haven't been baptized, you ought to be beating the door down saying, when's the next baptism? I want to obey the Lord Jesus. And I think all of us, as we begin this journey, could say, God, book of Numbers sounds like it's going to get my attention. Let's grow, Father. Take us as a church. Win many more to join us and follow Christ in all of your holiness. And let's make a difference. And then when we get to the edge of that Jordan River, which some of you may be close, that with joy and faith, you'll look ahead to that wonderful kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you bow with me in prayer? If God has spoken to your heart this morning, please keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Just between you and the Lord, if God's calling you to himself and, and you realize that, that you have never trusted and, and believed that the Lord Jesus died and you want to stop trying and start trusting and you want to turn from self and from sin and you want to trust in Jesus, the best you know how, just say, Lord Jesus, you spoke to me today and I believe that you died for my sins and I want you to wash me and forgive me And I want to join your people as a new person in Christ. And if that's your decision, the Bible says, confess that with your mouth. Come and let us know. Come and tell me afterward. If you'd like to meet and pray and talk to someone, I'd be glad to help you. And as a Christian, what might the Lord be saying to you this morning? Have you never been baptized? 
Have you been grumbling? Have you been immoral? Are you letting him lead your life? Are you thankful for his presence? Will you trust him with your trials? Some of you are brokenhearted. The Lord knows. He's near to those who are brokenhearted. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. I'll be the first one to say, wash me in your precious blood. You said if we confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive us. And Lord, may we as a church be revived and ready to follow you through the wilderness of this world. I pray that every one of our children will come to know the Lord. For those that are in crisis in their marriage, that you will give great healing, great mercy. For those whose health is poor, Lord, may you strengthen them. For those who are lost and confused, may we as a a family come alongside one another and encourage us, lest we become hardened in unbelief. Thank you for the work of the Spirit. We look forward to the days to come as you lead us and guide us, O great Jehovah. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you so much for your prayers for our leadership as we walk with God to the kingdom. God bless you. Have a great day.